invite you this morning to open your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. For those of you who have been visiting, we've been spending a considerable amount of time going through the Gospel of John, and yet we could just start over and do it again, which I would very much welcome, but uh, there's so much in the Gospel of John, and so as I bring a few thoughts and add some thoughts to this text this morning, I would always invite you to study it for yourself, to search for yourself what it may be saying and, and uh, what God may be speaking to you through this text. But for us, us this morning, I'll be reading John chapter 19, verses 31 through verse 42. And God's inspired and inerrant word reads, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And who, he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They shall look on him who they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he took away his body. Nicodemus, who had come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about a hundred pounds. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was already nearby, they laid Jesus there. Father, we would just ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And Father, now as we as I make an attempt to bring some type of application, some type of understanding to this text. Father, we would ask Your Spirit to illuminate this text for us so that we can understand what it means, but not leave it at meaning alone, but also so that we can add application to this text. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've titled this this morning, The Reality of the Cross. The novelist and philosopher Iris Murdoch once said that we live in a fantasy world, a world of illusion. The great task in life is to find reality. For most of us, we live in what could be defined as the 80% life. The 80% is where life is just life. It's the everyday life. Our days are routine, and we go about our day without giving much thought to what comes next. Then there's the rest of life, 
the 20% of life. This part of life can be divided into two extremes. 10% very good, 10% very bad. It is this small part of life that really shapes how we think, how we live, how we function. It is this small portion of our life from which our dreams are born, our passions are realized, our longings are created, the stories we tell, the experiences we pass along. It is from this small 10% of good life we draw our hope. But there is also the 10% of life that is really bad. It is the place of nightmares. It is the part of our life we want to forget. It is the part of our life we work really hard to bury in the dark and dusty archives of history, never to see the light of day again. We desire clarity. We pray for wisdom. We seek counsel. I offer to you that nothing brings us out of a fantasy world more quickly than these two extremes of life. In our text here before us this morning, it is in this 10% bad part of life that the followers of Jesus find themselves. However, it is not only the followers of Jesus that find themselves in this 10% bad portion of life. It is also the enemies of Jesus who find themselves face to face with this reality. And with reality comes clarity. And so this morning, from these 12 verses, we will see four realities that come from this cross scene. First, we'll see the reality of a cold heart, the reality of Scripture, the reality of faith, and then lastly, the reality of burial. Of burial. And so we'll begin with the reality of a cold heart. We see it in verses 31 to 34. Now, I don't know about you, but as we read these verses, and you already know me for the most part, for those who do, I can get hung up on a few things sometimes, and my brain kind of gets stuck right there in neutral. But I had a difficult time getting past this idea of what it takes for someone to call and go to the authorities and ask the legs of people who were crucified hanging upon the cross to have them be broken. I did a lot of reading, and I'll spare you the details. But just suffice it to say that an iron sledgehammer type, we would call it, is used to fracture the femurs. And you wonder, what possesses? What process does a person go through to get to this point, to get to this idea that this is a good thing to do, good thing to try, just so that they can get on with their plans, just so that they can get on with their life, just so that they can get on with their festivities, just so that they can get on in their religious events won't be hindered by these inconveniences hanging upon the cross. Mind you, it is religious authorities that went to Pilate that asked for this atrocity to be done. What does it take for a person 
to get to that point. And that is the reality of the cold heart. I was reminded in Matthew chapter 23, verse 24, where Jesus says, you blind guides, you who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. I don't know how much more applicable that could be, that verse, than to this scene that is here before us. Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, Jesus also said, because of lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Will grow cold. What does it take for a heart to turn so cold? I want to go to Matthew, or I'm sorry, to uh, 2 Timothy briefly. Briefly. Matthew, or uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, where Paul writes to Timothy as, as a warning, as a heads up, if you will. And he has this to say But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, I cannot help but wonder if Paul did not get his second cup of coffee as he was writing this letter. Is there anything else you could add to this list of warnings? I don't know that you could. But one thing, one thing that stuck out or jumped out at me was that I'm not sure that this time hasn't already arrived. At what point within this list haven't we ourselves possibly experienced? The time has arrived, and the list starts out with lovers of self. As we think about what does it take to have such a cold heart, again, I'm reminded, and I want to be very careful, I understand, uh, but I want to be very careful as I try to draw some type of application, and as we think about today, because it can be so easy to put these types of events in the past. It can be so easy to take these types of things and just read over them, just to gloss over them without seeing the cruel, the brutality of what these religious leaders were asking for. And I was reminded this week of, a, of what I thought was an excellent praise that the state of Texas, right? The state of Texas uh, put in a, a, a law into effect that if a heartbeat is detected, Abortions should not be provided. Well, that seems reasonable. That seems like common sense. Of course, as Christians, we believe life begins at conception and that no life should be taken. But I was also reading articles of churches in Texas that are coming out against such a law, that are coming out against such a rule and saying that, no, we need these productive rights. When women need to have their reproductive rights. They do have reproductive rights, but there comes a point in time where that is now too late. But I wonder, what can it take for those who name the name of Christ, 
For those who say they are Christian, which I would add, if you continue in that path, you are not Christian, to think that abortion's okay. To think that the mutilation of a body is okay. Now, I understand mistakes are made. I understand people find themselves in difficult perspectives. And so I'm talking about it in a very broad and general way. But you also must know there is forgiveness for every kind and every type of sin. But what kind of people call themselves Christian and yet say abortion is okay? I'd say it's the kind we find right here in our text this morning that go to Pilate and ask that the legs of these people be broken so that they can keep their own life. They can keep their own pattern of life, their own wishes, their own wants going as it is and get rid of these inconveniences that they find before them. But that is the reality of the cold heart. And the cross calls us to reconcile with it. But also in this section of verses here, I want to highlight um, verse 34. Because, you know, coming to Jesus, Jesus had already uh, given up his spirit, as we've seen last week in verse 30. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He was he has given it. And yet it says that when they took the spear and they thrust it into his side, water and blood came out. Now, uh, I, I, I enjoy reading dense books that I don't understand. I don't know why I like to do that, but nonetheless, much has been written on the blood and the water when it comes to this. And you can read all those things for yourself, and we, we really, a lot of speculation can go in it, but there's a few things that, that I think we can be assured of when we think of the blood and the water. First, and quite obviously, we see the blood as the atonement. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And in 1 John 1, 7, it tells us that the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. And so certainly we can see that application here, that there's only one way that we can be right before a holy God, and that is through the blood of Jesus. And we also see here that water also came out. And some of you are medical professionals, and you can probably have a biological explanation for such a thing. But as I attempt to bring some type of spiritual application to that, I was also drawn to John chapter 4 with the woman at the well where Jesus told the woman there that the water that I give you is an everlasting water, a water that you'll no longer thirst, but it will bring eternal life to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, Paul reminds, drawing the analogy between Christ and the church, the husband and the wife, that having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul tells the Corinthians there, when he says that such were some of you, we were all maybe find ourselves sometime or another in this Second Timothy chapter, in that list of vices, if you will. And Paul acknowledges that here, and he says, but such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. 
And so I think we would do well to add that application to the blood and the water, understanding and recognizing that it is through the blood of Jesus that we can have forgiveness of sins. And it is through His Word that we can be cleansed, that we can be sanctified, a continuing process. Justification happens at atonement. Sanctification happens throughout life. And this happens through the washing of the water with the Word. But that's the the reality of the cold heart. Next, we want to look at the reality of Scripture in verses 35 to verse 37. I find it interesting that John uh, calls out, and he, of course, he never names himself. He doesn't ever name himself in, in the Gospel of John, but certainly who he's referring to here in verse 35. But he says that his testimony is true and that he's telling the truth so that, here's the reason why, so that you may believe And again, as we think about the whole thesis that John has for the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verse 34, where he says that these things were written so that you may know, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he always refers to Scripture throughout this Gospel of John. Many places uh, that I had searched through this week, and it's amazing how many times John refers back to Scripture, back to the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And And he does so here. And this is the the Passover, I would remind you, of the Jews and and, and John of the Jewish people here. And and John clearly uh, sees the connection here with the Passover lamb as he highlights that not a bone of him shall be broken. As he refers back to Exodus, where they were told that that as they take part of the the Passover lamb, that they are not to break any bones of of the lamb's body or the the lamb's, uh, uh, yeah, in his body. And then in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, we also see there as Zechariah says that, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Again, John is referring back to the fulfillment of what is taking place here at this cross scene. And that's all before the cross. If we want to look beyond the cross, which us, of course, living on this side of the cross, we certainly want to do. I remind you of Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 where it is told us in the opening chapter of Revelation, a chapter of hope, a chapter, and I'd say the whole book is a chapter of, of hope. But in verse uh, 7, <clears throat> says this, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Again, we just see the reality of Scripture as we think about this scene before the cross. And what I mean by that, we see the, the fulfillment of Scripture in this cross event. This wasn't an accident. Before the, <clears throat> before the foundation of the world was ever established, the divine council met and said this is how it was going to tar- take place. And we see the fulfillment of that here. But next I want to look at the reality of faith. The reality of faith in verse 38 to to verse 40. And here we are introduced to someone that we have no other record of in the biblical text, and that is this Joseph of Arimathea. We know nothing about him other than he was part of the Jewish leadership here. And it tells us here that, that Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for he feared the Jews, asked Pilate, for he feared the religious people. When we think of Jews, we must think of religious people, not we must think of the religious leaders. Asked Pilate that he may take the body, and Pilate granted him permission to do so. Mark 
also records this event for us. And, and he says it like this, that Joseph of Arimathea came. He was a prominent member of council. So we see that here was a man who was part of the, the leadership of the church, if you will, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And I like this. Mark adds this little phrase here. And he says, who, and he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body. In John chapter 12, verse 42, we already seen where John said that many of the rulers believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not, because of the religious leaders, they were not confessing Jesus for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval, the glory of men rather than the approval, the glory of God. And so what we see here is that uh, we see the reality of the cross, and it brings into the focus the reality of our faith, of our faith. Joseph here shows courage when the disciples of Jesus, who lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, taught with Jesus, ate with Jesus, spent three years of their life, when they bailed, when they fled, Joseph found the courage to step up to step up and ask for the body of Jesus. Joseph showed courage when it was a dangerous thing to do. When his reputation, when his position in the synagogue, when his position in the community was at stake, was on the line, he showed courage and put that aside and he did the right thing. And I want to offer to you this morning that there will come a time for you. There will come a time in your life as there comes a time in our life that our faith is no longer secret. We often talk about a secret Christian, a secret believer, and I understand what we're doing, but I'm telling you this morning, there is no such thing as a secret believer. Well, you might point to Joseph here of Arimathea, but I remind you, how do you even know about Joseph of Arimathea? It is no longer a secret, right? There comes a point in time where we too must stand up for our faith, where we too must have the courage, have the faith, and look danger in the eye and do the right thing on behalf of Christ. There are times where people certainly are Christian. And they're quiet. They're a little shy about it. They're not sure about it. They're testing the waters, if we will. And we want to be patient. We certainly understand those things. And we don't want to be hastily judgmental of those who are seeking, who those who are searching. I think we have Nicodemus, the second person of our story here, as one such person. Now, Nicodemus, we know very much about. He's also, uh, him, and, him and Joseph must have been buddies, part of the consul. We've seen him in John chapter 3 where he came to Jesus by night. A few chapters later, when Jesus stood before this very consul of religious leaders, Nicodemus stood up on behalf of Jesus at Jesus' trial. But yet the reality of this situation now before Nicodemus brings clarity. It's a growing in faith. Nicodemus now came to a crossroad where he must decide. Will he remain a seeker? Will he remain a skeptic? Will he remain a searcher? Or will he be all in on behalf of Jesus? Not all faith is zero to 60. Some faith takes time. Some faith needs to develop. And I think we see that here with Nicodemus. I want to again go back to 2 Timothy 
2 Timothy chapter, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Paul writing to encourage Timothy. He tells Timothy that, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Secret? Timid? Why? Evidently, because Timothy was a bit ashamed. And I wonder sometimes if that's not where we find ourselves as Christian people. You know, we believe some wild things, do we not? Some of the stuff that we proclaim is, is, is somewhat wild, right? Is somewhat, is it even believable, right? And yet, here we are told, and here we see that there will come a point in time where we too may stand before or may be called into question as Nicodemus and Joseph were. Well, we too must take a stand. And you know, <clears throat> I hope you gather that by now that much of my teaching, my preaching, I guess, is in that vein. Is in that now we have such a wonderful opportunity. We are indeed blessed here as American Christians to be able to worship, to be able to serve, to be able to go to work, to be able to do so many things and say we're Christian. And, and indeed, I trust we indeed are all Christians. But the time may come where we too will have to stand and face fear just as many of those we look up to throughout the biblical text and our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and around the world who need to do that. That's my goal. That's my passion is to give you ammunition, if you will, to draw upon in moments like this. John Calvin, he had this to say. He said that here we have a striking proof that Christ's death was more quickening than his life. So great was the efficacy of the sweet savor which the death of Christ conveyed to the minds of these two men, that it quickly extinguished all passions of the, of the flesh. Isn't that it, right? There's times where we have to stand up and take courage on behalf of Christ, where there's, a, there's this energy that comes through us and it puts things into perspective. With the cross before them, these two men, the reality of faith comes into clarity. And they choose. And I might add, they choose wisely. But lastly, we want to finish up with the burial. The reality of the burial of Christ. It's in verses 41 to 42. We've all been there, right? We've all been to the burial of a loved one. And we know the finality of the moment. The sadness. The heaviness. The reality of it. We experienced it. We've been there. And we understand what that brings and there's times for, for many of us, depending on how close we are to that person, that we wonder, will tomorrow even come? Or maybe we don't even want it to come. And we understand and we too know that that, that passes. That is what they, they must have understood or felt, I should say, this morning or here at this cross scene. They must have experienced a little bit of that emotion that many of us, probably every single one of us, has also experienced. And that is where the reality of the burial comes in. Beezer has this to say where he says that twice was Jesus Christ rich in the days of his poverty. Once immediately after his birth, when the wise men from the east offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh, and now after his death, when a rich man buries him 
and a distinguished man provides spices to anoint him. Yea, a rich Joseph has taken the place of that poor Joseph who stood in by the manger. Isn't that beautiful? I love that as you think of the life of Jesus and as we think about the burial and the, and the hope that we as Christians thinking of the burial of Jesus comes from this event. Sometimes reality takes time to set in and I believe that was the case in this particular burial. In three days, that will all change. That will all turn as we continue on for here and see, the, see the, especially the response of Peter in his repentance of, of how he fled at this time. But it takes time for sometimes some of these things to settle in, to sink in, to hit home. Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.18 where he says this, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I, I, I like that. And you need to circle those two words in your Bible, are being saved. It is a continuation of our faith. There are times we stumble. There are times we trip up. And we understand it is a continuing process. Paul is encouraging those in Corinth with those words. And then Paul ends his letter in Corinth like this. Chapter 15, I delivered to you as of first importance. It's the gospel in as concise a package as you can get it. I delivered to you of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Here we see the reality of the cross, the reality of the burial, the importance, the significance of it in our faith. Because indeed, if Jesus hasn't been buried, as some of the liberal scholars want to, want to say that Jesus fainted or whatever he did, he didn't really, really die, well, this would certainly dispute that, at least Paul's understanding of it. And it is from that, from this burial, from the sadness, from the heaviness, from the reality of it, that indeed, light will break forth and shine through. This is the reality of the cross. Jesus went to the cross on your behalf, on my behalf, and it is through this horrific event that you and I can indeed have life, eternal life. This is the reality of the cross. There's only two options. You either accept its foolishness along with its power and accept the demand it places on the followers of Christ, or you reject it and remain in your sins. Those are the only two options. That is the reality of the cross. Father, I pray this morning as we, as we humbly try to add some type of thought to your text. Father, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and how you work in each one of our lives. Lord, my words, whatever they are, can only go to the ear. Father, it is only you that can reach the heart and reach the mind. So I pray, Lord, that your living word would indeed do that here this morning that you would have your way among us. Sometimes we find ourselves very hard, very cold. And other times we find ourselves in a great state of grief. Father, I don't know where we are this morning. But I pray, Lord, that you would have your way among us. And that we would not leave this place until we have fully and totally surrendered our lives to you. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.